and what a remarkable season it's been. I think we can all agree, and what a remarkable year it has been. And what better way to end the year than to celebrate the life and work of and centennial of our nation's 35th president, John F. Kennedy. Uh, speaking of hard to believe, I think it's for all of us hard to believe that President Kennedy would now be 100 uh, given that image of youthfulness and vigor that's seared into the nation's consciousness. We typically focus, as those of you who are parishioners and regulars know, on presidents during the month of February, February being President's Month, but I simply couldn't let President Kennedy's centennial pass without celebrating it and marking it. The birthday will be May 29th, so next weekend uh, we're pleased to celebrate it this weekend. With us this Sunday to mark the centennial of the president is the executive director of the John F. Kennedy Library Foundation, Stephen Rothstein. Mr. Rothstein is an accomplished nonprofit administrator, public servant, and entrepreneur. Prior to taking the lead of the foundation in August of last year, he served as the CEO of Citizen Schools, which is a national nonprofit that partners with middle schools to expand the learning day for children in low-income communities. Before that, he served as president of the world-renowned Perkins School for the Blind for 11 years. He was also part of the founding team, along with Joe Kennedy II of Citizens Energy Corporation, uh, a company that provides low-cost oil, natural gas, electricity, and pharmaceutical services for needy citizens. Mr. Rothstein graduated with honors from Williams College, and he also holds an MBA from Northeastern. With that, please join me in welcoming, in this very busy month for him, Stephen Rothstein. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Clark, to you for the kind invitation and each and every one of you for your time. I know you have a lot of things, uh, so appreciate your time and being here. Um, and it's really an honor to be here in this incredibly historic church, not just as the Church of the Presidents and all the rest of that, but in doing some research for today, I realized that um, your bell came from um, Paul Revere's son, Joseph, that he made in his Boston foundry um, and brought down here in 1822. I'm just glad I didn't have that for carry-on luggage. <laughs> it was a thousand pounds, but there is that Boston connection with this incredibly historic uh, uh, facility that you have. So again, thank you very much for the kind invitation. Um, earlier I said this is a grand finale. You'll see at the end whether you consider it grand or not. I'll leave that to, that to you. But uh, it is, as was said, the centennial for John F. Kennedy's birth. The actual birthday is May 29th, the week from Monday, Memorial Day. But we're celebrating throughout the year. I was actually down here earlier this week. There is a congressionally authorized commission, the John F. Kennedy um, Centennial Commission. And we're meeting on Capitol Hill to talk about some of the activities that are going on. And I'm happy to share more about the activities. There also, I also have information up here in the front seat, if you want to get more information, about lots of things happening both online and at the museum. Next week, we're opening a new exhibit that will have 100 items for the centennial, of which 40 have never been seen before in the public. Um, the flag that was on PT-109, many of his personal items, neckties and things like that, and, and other things. So feel free to come. We also have a lot of stuff online. Um, but I, I want to talk about um, what I refer to as, as a, a phrase that we're using for the centennial calling, visionaries never go out of style. And I think that John Kennedy is not just a historical figure that is studied in school, um, but is just as relevant today as he was back in the early 60s. And when I think about that, 
I think about this phrase CSI, not the TV show, but CSI, C standing for courage, S standing for service, I standing for innovation and inclusion. Um, and, and that what he did back then, as I say, is just as relevant today. So when I think about um, courage, one is um, the courage to learn. That after he came in and after the Bay of Pigs, he realized that that didn't go as well as he wanted, to put it mildly. And he said, what can we do better? So as a result of that, established a situation room had never existed. The hotline to Russia, then a teletype, never existed before. The um, Green Berets never ex existed in the current structure. The Navy SEALs and the daily uh, security briefing to the president. All of those that have helped in a variety of, a variety of ways. Um, he also, when you think about courage, literally exhibited it through his work on PT-109 and saving lives and getting the medals that he did. And his work in writing Profiles in Courage and what it talked about. We continue to give out the Profile in Courage Award to honor President Kennedy's legacy. So it, just uh, 10 days ago, two weeks ago, we gave it to President Obama. Several years ago, we gave it to, to Jerry Ford for pardoning Nixon, John McCain for his work in campaign finance, um, Congressman Lewis for his work in civil rights. So it's a very much of a nonpartisan or bipartisan, and it's really to stand up for your beliefs. And uh, we got, it's interesting, when I say it's just as relevant today, a few years ago, we got 1,000 nominations for the Profile and Courage Award. This year, we got 30,000 nominations. That says that people want that more than ever, and we'll continue to try to highlight that. So this idea of courage is very important. I also was reading the Washington Post this morning, and in the magazine section, there is an article about media and President Kennedy and President Trump, and it talks about the press conferences. Well, he gave the first live televised press conferences ever. Um, and he, and in, in less than three years in office, he gave 64 press conferences, one almost every uh, 16, 17 days. And they sometimes had a few hundred people there because they didn't have a White House briefing room at the time. Um, and, he, and, and he answered all kinds of questions, and his staff were very nervous about it, actually opposed it. Felt that live, televised press conferences, you never know what he might say, and, and how do you walk comments back. President Kennedy felt that the transparency that would be gained was much more important than if there'd be an, a slight error. So in fact, in 1962, Pew Research did an annual survey. They did an annual survey of trust in government. In 1962, 75% of people trusted government. 75% trusted government. Didn't agree with every decision, but trusted it. Last year, before the election, it was 19%. I'd hate to, I don't know what the new number is, but um, so, so courage is something that's important. The second of CSI is service. Um, it didn't just start with the inauguration when he asked, ask not what your country can do for you. But in fact, during the campaign, when he ran for office, um, after, the first, after, after one of the Nixon-Kennedy debates, he uh, flew to University of Michigan. He got there at 2 in the morning, and there was, he had planned just to go to sleep. But there were 
thousands of students waiting for him. They were so excited. So he gave an impromptu speech on October 14th, and he said, and I'll quote part of this, two in the morning, how many of you are going to be doctors or willing to spend your days in Ghana, technicians or engineers? How many of you are willing to work in the foreign service and spend your lives traveling around the world? On your willingness to do that, not merely to serve one year or two years in service, but in your willingness to contribute part of your life to our country, I think will depend the answer to whether a free society can compete. I think will depend the answer on whether a free society can compete. I think it can. I think Americans are willing to contribute, but that effort must be greater than we've ever made before. Um, while he was on the dais, about to be sworn in, Sergeant Shriver sent him a note and said, when should we start planning the Peace Corps? President Kennedy writes back tomorrow morning, just as before he gets up to give his speech. By March 1st, the Peace Corps was established by executive order. By September, legislation had, had been started and, and the department. By the end of the year, young people were all, all over the world, Tanzania and many other countries. As of today, there have been 225,000 people, roughly a quarter of a million people, who have served in the Peace Corps. Not only have they impacted the city, the village, the country that they're in, but their lives, in many cases, have been affected uh, in, a, in a very profound way uh, throughout their lives. The Peace Corps, then Sergeant Shriver, um, after President Kennedy passed away, start, started VISTA, and that led to AmeriCorps under Clinton, and many nonprofit groups, City Year, and literally thousands of others. So the commitment of service is just as relevant today as it is in other places. We just had a big event. And a lot of places have a military honor guard. We had a service honor guard. We had 10 nonprofits there to welcome President Obama and others as they came in. Because again, service, we think, is something critical, what President Kennedy talked about. And it's, it's good in a very bipartisan way. George H.W. Bush did it. His father, uh, I'm sorry, his son worked on, on points of light and other things. So service is something that we think is critical. The third element is innovation. At um, Rice University, I'm going to read part of his speech where he talked about going to the moon. He said, quote, we set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won, and they must be won and used for the progress of all people. For space science, like nuclear science, and all technology has no conscience of its own. Well, whether it'll become a force for good or ill depends on man, and only if the United States occupies a position of preeminence can we help whether this new ocean will be a sea of peace or a terrifying theater of war. I do not say that we should or will go unprotected into the hostile misuse of space any more and we go unprotected into the hostile use of land or sea. But I do say that space can be explored and mastered without feeding the fires of war, without repeating the mistakes that man has made in extending his writ upon the globe of ours. Therefore, we choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they're easy 
but because they are hard. And because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept and one that we are unwilling to postpone and one that we intend to win and the others too. When he decided to go to the moon, we as a country knew very little about technology. In fact, the original capsule, and if you ever come to Boston and have a chance to visit the library, you'll see the capsule there that went up, uh, one of the two capsules. The, the original capsule had less technology, less than half the technology, than your smartphone in your pocket does today. Not all of them, any one of them. And it was, it's breathtaking. The, and he fundamentally believed, again, it goes back to service, that if we come together, um, we'll make great progress. Today, when there are big ideas, we call them moonshots. Corporation X has a moonshot. Uh, Vice President Biden has a cancer moonshot. I think we need more moonshots and elected officials willing to take risks to set big, ambitious goals, moonshots. Um, it clearly moved our country forward, not just the going to the moon, but there have been literally hundreds of technologies that have come out of the space exploration, that de-icing of planes, GPSs, I mean, so much, so much more that we've learned from. And so this inspiration of innovation is something I think we need today. He also, um, twice during his presidency, reached out to the Russians. While he started it, to really compete and didn't want to, Sputnik was ahead and wanted to catch up. He also wrote to them and said, why don't we do a joint exploration? Um, it didn't obviously come to fruition, but he thought in mastering um, space, if we could do it together, it would be a sign of international diplomacy. Just as he worked on the first nuclear arms agreement and the hotline and many, many other things. So innovation is very important. The last I in CSII is inclusion. I'm going to read something, and then, and then I'll tell you who said it and when it was said. Quote, a way of indicating the importance of immigration to America is to point out that every American who has lived, with the exception of one group, was either an immigrant himself or a descendant of immigrants. Immigration policy should be generous. It should be fair. It should be flexible. With such a policy, we can turn to the world and our own past with clean hands and a clear conscience. The interaction of disparate cultures, the vehemence of the ideals that led the immigra immigrants here, and the opportunity afforded by a new life all gave America a flavor and a character that make it unmistakable and as remarkable to people today as it was to de Tocqueville in the early part of the 19th century. Those words were part of a book written by Senator, Senator John Kennedy in 1958 called A Nation of Immigrants. It was, it, he wrote three books. Um, during his life that were, were published. Uh, Profiles and Courage is the most well-known. He wrote one that was his 
Harvard thesis, Why England Slept, and Nation of Immigrants. I think those words are just as relevant today, um, some might argue more relevant. Um, and he, he fundamentally believed that our country's stronger through including. Clearly, he was very active in civil rights. When you look at the history, you know, some would argue, and I think legitimately so, there's even more he could have done. Um, he was trying to balance lots of issues at the time, but he made great progress and was the first president in recent times, not, I'm not counting Lincoln or others, to make it really the moral issue that it was. And it led to an environment that allowed Johnson to really pass enormous legislation uh, that, that made our country different. He was the first president in a significant way to deal with, with people with disabilities in terms of intellectual disabilities through his sister and the President's Commission on, it was then called Mental Retardation. He established the first National Commission on the Status of Women. So if you look back, there's always more you can do. And in 1,036 days, is clearly it was an unfinished agenda. But he fundamentally believed, through inclusion, we could go a lot further. So as I say, I believe through thinking about courage, service, innovation, and inclusion, CSII, that his words are just as relevant today, that visionaries never go out of style, and that I hope that he's looked upon not just as an interesting historical figure, and there's a lot of interesting elements there. How many of you have been to Cape Cod, for example? So if you have ever appreciated the National Seashore, that was because of John Kennedy. He wanted to open that up and really democratize those elements. And there's, again, many, many other things that, that he worked on as well. So I hope that, I mean, I'm happy to answer some, some questions, but I hope that um, come to the website and look at, the, look at some of the things we're doing. There are lots of events. Uh, this coming week, the Kennedy Center here has some great events. And if you're interested, you know, Yo-Yo Ma is playing and other great, great activities. If you get to Boston, there are, we, we're having things. There's a new, a few blocks from here at the Smithsonian American Art Museum. They have a special uh, photographic exhibit of President Kennedy, 77 photographs that we, uh, was at the opening a few weeks ago, and it'll be there through the middle of September. Um, and then we have a program online where we haven't publicly announced yet, but on our website called Where in the World is JFK? Like, Where in the World is Waldo? And uh, we've, we've done some research, and we're trying to identify as many places we can find that are named after President Kennedy. So far, we've identified 650 around the world, schools, hospitals, bridges, as cities, as islands, airports, you name it. Um, and then we're trying to build connections with if you visit five of them and have your photo taken and all kinds of other kinds of act activities. So we'd love to have you join us in that. So with that, let me um, open up for questions. Again, thank Clark and, and the committee, and happy to answer questions. Thank you so much. So um, I, I, I try to stay away from what he would do in this situation, because I, 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 I know a lot, but I think that would be presumptuous. But what I can say is, tell you what he said about things. Um, first is, if you just take the press conference as an example, he believed in transparency in government. 
And doesn't mean he liked every press person or he liked every story. There were lots of specifics. But he fundamentally believed that having an active dialogue was really important. I know he believed in learning from mistakes. This, this, what I told you about earlier in terms of um, this, uh, from the Bay, between the Bay of Pigs and the Cuban Missile Crisis, what he did to improve our national security. He fundamentally believed that the answer was not him. And he said, literally in his inaugural address, and many times he said, You're gonna have, you, the audience, are going to have a lot more to do with the future of our country than I ever will be. And by, by seeking their better angels and by engaging them, his commitment to service, I mean, the Peace Corps is a specific example, but there are many other areas. So by bringing people together, he also um, had, was a bipartisan in a sense, had Republicans in the, in the cabinet, brought in a multi-billion dollar tax cut, um, in, in a, a variety of other ways. So really trying to bring people together, both at the policy level, bring people together by these big ideas like the moonshot, bring people together with seeking areas like the P Peace Corps. He also traveled a lot, both when he, was, when, his when he was in college, his father was the ambassador to UK, and he traveled a lot back then in the late 30s. And then when he went to Congress, he also traveled a lot. And he understood many uh, about countries and cultures and felt that by bringing people together, we would do so much. In fact, his daughter, uh, Carolyn Kennedy, who just came back from being ambassador to Japan, um, I'll give you a sense of just kind of reconciliation. So in 1963, John Kennedy, the president who, when he was in the Second World War, his ship was attacked by the Japanese. Many of his crew members were killed. He broke his back, led to the, all the PT-109. In 1963, he was making plans to go to Japan to be the first post-World War II presidency to go there because the assassination obviously didn't get there. His daughter later becomes the ambassador, and one of the things she does is reaches out to the widow of the captain of the ship that destroyed PT-109 and provides a peace offering um, in terms of reconciliation. So I think, I think he clearly not just today, but when he was alive, talked about service by bringing people together, um, by reaching out nationally and internationally, and the immigration quote is just one of those examples. Uh, sure. Yeah, so, so the question is, did he make comments to make higher education very important uh, and more, more accessible? Um, yes, he did. So yes, he did. First is, again, it's important to remember he was in office for less than three years. So a lot of the things that he wanted to do, he didn't get to do as much of what he wanted. It's also important to remember that the cost of higher education then was very different from a GDP perspective, from an economic perspective than it is today. But he did work on that. He felt education was so important. And in fact, when you, if you visited the library, if you haven't, I encourage you to come, we're right next to University of Mass Boston, a uh, public institution. Um, it's a majority-minority school. And when and the reason we were there, first they were thinking about putting it right next to Harvard, but the neighbors raised concerns, and Mrs. Kennedy said, if they don't want us, I don't want to be there. While we, they could have won the kind of citing by it, they don't want to be there. So then she was approached by the then chancellor of University of Mass and said, would you like to have it here? And she chose that place, the place we are now, for two reasons. First, because the importance of public education, President Kennedy, um, and because it was right near the water, and both of those things were very important. But there, you know, this was again before Johnson, before many of the departments 
before transportation and education and things like that. So he did work on it. And, and the other thing is I will share is that our archives are completely open to anyone. You can either come up or you can send emails. We're in the, also in the process of digitizing things. So if you wanted to know specifically what did he do on a particular bill, you could write to them. I'm happy to make contact or you could write to them directly. But clearly education is something he thought was critically important for the, for the entire country. And part of the racial justice agenda that he had Question was, he was notable for a sense of humor. Do I have a bottle of a sense of humor I can send to the White House? Um, he was notable for a sense of humor. I don't have a bottle I can send over there. Um, but it is all available on YouTube. And I think they probably have access to YouTube as well. Um, and, and, he, um, and, and he did, you know, he's one of these people that you say it's good to take your job seriously but not yourself seriously. And there were many, many times, you know, I'll just give you a few examples, you know, when he was asked about how he was going to announce his brother to be appointed attorney general, and he knew he'd get flack for that. Um, he said my, he was then living in Georgetown, and he said, my intent is to go out, open my door at 3 in the morning, hope no one's watching, <laughs> and announce it. Um, when he was... Um, uh, one of the press conferences, and again, they're all online, they're also on all, uh, most of them are on our website, you can take a look, but on, uh, uh, one of the press conferences, one of the reporters was asked, do you, um, there is, and I don't remember the gentleman's name, who had done mockery of President Kennedy and done some records uh, uh, making fun of his accent and things like that. Oh, and, huh? And, and so the reporter said, what do you think of him? and talked about it, and the president laughed, and he said, well, I think he sounds more like Teddy, so Teddy's upset, I'm not. <laughs> um, so yes, he did have a, a good sense of humor and uh, um, appreciate, knew, knew, also knew how to use that with his wit. So I don't know the dates. I could go back and research, or I can, again, give you the contact the archives. I, I, I did actually ask our archivist that he did come here. I don't, I don't have the dates. I could try to find them. I know that when he lived in Georgetown, his primary church was a, was a different church there, but I know that he did worship here. I don't know the specific dates, though. But again, I can get those or someone else here. So what was the relationship between Kennedy and, and Castro? Well, clearly, this started not because of, you know, when he came in, literally in his first days, he was given this plan that was developed under the Eisenhower administration about the Bay of Pigs. And one of the things, he, he, he was getting a... Um, unanimous perspective from the military on that. Because of the challenges of the Bay of Pigs, it led him to question that. And to be honest, thank God he did when we got to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, that, uh, and that was really kind of the, the focus of really the arms there and the concern. I can tell you that later on, uh, President Kennedy's family and Robert Kennedy's family developed a relationship with, with Castro, went down several times. And one of the other elements that we have is we have, at the library, 90% of Ernest Hemingway's papers. The uh, Ernest Hemingway and his wife, uh, late wife Mary, and, and President and Mrs. Kennedy were friends. And Ernest Hemingway had a house in Cuba, uh, just outside of Havana. He came back in 1961, uh, committed suicide, and then his wife couldn't get the papers. Mrs. Kennedy arranged, because it was in the embargo, for him to get the papers. So, that, so we now have a very close relationship with Cuba. Just this year, uh, three officials from Cuba have come to the library and visit. So we've built a variety of other things over time between the Kennedy legacy and the broader family. I know that uh, Ethel Kennedy's gone there several times, several of the kids have, and have been very active in promoting that uh, relationship. 
So we are for complete transparency of all information. Um, and there is, as, as, as was said, um, so on, in October, I think it's the 17th, but it's sometime in the month of October of this year, unless the president changes it, the final documents that have not been opened um, regarding the assassination will be declassified and opened. I have absolutely no idea what's in them and whether they're, you know, whether it'll change any conclusions or not. Um, I have kind of my own personal perspective, but officially I, have, I don't know. So we actually have, um, what's, what the, way, the way it works is for documents is when the president leaves office, all the papers are owned by the National Archives, owned by the federal government. And that changed actually after Nixon, and there's a whole discussion about that I'm happy to share if you want. Um, and uh, many are declassified right away, and some are declassified over time. So actually at the library, we still have a skiff, a secure room, um, where there's still a few documents, not tied to the assassination, but other things that still have been declassified. And every six months or so, more are declassified. So yes, unless President Trump um, vetoes or changes a law, that the National Archives will declassify additional information in October regarding the assassination, and we'll all see it at the same time. So um, elaborate on the decision-making process during, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So during those 13 days, again, we didn't have the communication that we have today, obviously not just internet or things like that. There was no situation room. There was, you know, satellites, the amount of information they had was very different. So the information he was getting wasn't as what we think about today. And that there was pretty uniform ex uh, recommendation about a invasion. Everyone agreed that we couldn't have um, arms in Cuba, 90 miles away, um, but the best way to stop that. And many of the military, uh, and there's lots of public information that will highlight this, felt that we should go and just do a very kind of strategic uh, attack on the military and that Russia wouldn't respond. And that President Kennedy didn't believe that uh, and felt that, that it could be the start of a war that could have cost, whatever, tens of millions. Um, and so there were several times where during that where he kind of uh, bucked the, the, the recommendation. There was one famous dialogue with Curtis LeMay, one of the leaders, where Curtis LeMay said, um, Mr. President, you've really gotten yourself into a mess. And the president said, excuse me, I've gotten myself into a mess? You mean we're all in a mess here? And this concept that, you know, the uh, decision. And there were at the same time back channels with Turkey I mean, as part of the arrangement was that uh, U.S. would withdraw some of the missiles in Turkey, but it wouldn't happen until six months later. That wasn't publicly talked about at the, at the time, worked other things. So it was very fortunate that he, he got great advice, but he also had healthy challenge for some of the information and some of the assumptions, and that he came to that with the worldview that he did. People who are a lot more knowledgeable on this topic than I am, I mean, full-time Cuban Missile Crisis scholars, will almost uniformly say that, you know, whether it's tens of millions or some number, probably would have been affected if he had, if he had gone with the military decision back then. And again, there was no process, there was no situation room, there was no XCOM in an official way that he helped build up as really through that effort. Uh, the question is, when did he first visit with, Vienna, with Khrushchev? Was it in Vienna? I think so, but I would have to check. I think that's right. But I. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I think, but I again, I don't want to. I I don't want to give the wrong date. I don't want to say it. Yes. Yeah. And and clearly, I mean, 
Khrushchev from that first meeting felt he was a young, inexperienced president, um, which led to some of the perspectives. And, you know, um, uh, as part of that, you know, there are also the, one of his more famous speeches was the one in Berlin. You know, when he went to Berlin um, in the summer of 1963, the end of June, and he, you know, he arrived in Berlin. He had this beautiful speech written by Ted Sorensen, his speechwriter. And he was met by enormous crowds from the airport. And then he arrived in this public square, and there were about half a million people there. And he decided, and with, with the wall just behind him. Um, and he threw out this speech. And so if you go online and, and watch it, the, it's an extemporaneous speech. It's brilliant, just brilliant. And the only thing was, he had gone up to one of uh, somebody, one of the German officials, and said, "How do I say we're all Berliners?" There's some debate of whether you use the right syntax for that. Um, that's a whole other issue. But so, in our library, if you visit, you'll see a copy of the note card where it says, "Ich bin ein Berliner," um, and the rest of that speech, where it says we're all Berliners, is all done extemporaneously. So the question is, uh, in Dallas, um, the question about the bubble top and President Kennedy decided not to have that. Um, so yes, he, he, they did recommend it and he did decide to do it. Clearly, just to take go back, he went to Dallas to solve a local political problem because there were factions in the Democratic Party and gearing up for the 64 kind of re-election campaign and went there and when he was um, met, um, Nellie Conley, the then the wife of John Conley um, said to Mrs. Kennedy something about, because they got an enormous crowd uh, of supporters, says, oh, don't you understand now that everyone loves you here, or everyone in Dallas loves you, or I don't remember the exact words, but something like to that effect. And he did make that decision. Um, do, do, clearly, the, the world was different back then in terms of Secret Service protection um, and, and security in so many other ways. The second part of it is, do the Secret Service have the final uh, decision now. I don't know the answer. I think so, but I, do, I don't know that. I know we just had President Obama two weeks ago at the library, and I spent, I have many new gray hairs dealing with the Secret <laughs> Service, um, that they do, uh, you know, they, they're very directive, and, and they do their job well to make them for the safety. But who makes those final decisions? I don't know. Absolutely, yes. He, he was. It was a, at first, it was a very different time. Um, and the idea of, of being friends, having him for a movie, going out for drinks, drink, something like that, was, was expected. And he very much believed, as did his brothers, and notably, you know, Senator Edward Kennedy was known for this, of reaching across the aisle to get something done. Um, but he, he actually had had an initial conversation. Um, it was expected that Goldwater would be his opponent in 1964. And he had reached out through an intermediary to say, why doesn't he and Gold, why, why doesn't President Kennedy and Goldwater travel on the same plane and do campaign rallies together? I mean, not oppose, you know, kind of debates and things like that, and really trying to have a healthy debate because he fundamentally believed the power of the ideas, and by having that, trans, you know, he knew how to engage the media and the public. So by working on that, and on a personal level, you know, having been a member of. United States Congress, member of the United States Senate, he saw the, the impact of that and the relationship. So absolutely, he was, um, I'm not sure if I'd say, he, he, had, he had both personal and professional relationships with a number of Republican leaders, and that was very helpful in getting things. 
Um, so if you have about four hours, um, I mean, there are, I've, I've literally, I've, I've read, there are, there are four books I know about this topic. I've read two of them, and there are others. And there is a, it's a hot debate. Um, and I just finished a book about Nixon where, uh, that, that was a great book and talked about some of these things. But clearly, he was having, I can tell you some of the core principles. What he would have done, I can't say, because I, I don't know. But he did have, as I said before, both respect, but a healthy challenge for the advice he was getting from the military because of what happened and some of the things I talked about, Bay of Pigs and whatever. And the idea of, and that he had visited um, Southeast Asia and other places, again, in his early travels and understood the nuances there. So there is a lot of information that says we would not have gotten as involved, um, but I can't say all those things. There is, there is one of the books I just read, John Farrell wrote a book about Nixon. And one of the things in there is a lot of information that in 1968, um, that Nixon extended the war uh, as a way to help to hurt the then thought thinking re-election of Lyndon Johnson. Um, and there's a lot of data on that that's very, very disturbing. Um, so I think there's a, there's a lot of indication to say that we wouldn't have got as engaged, but I can't say that. There, there's nothing that I know. I don't want to say there isn't anything. I mean, we have um, 25 million documents. I mean, I know a bunch, but there's so much I don't begin to know, so I don't want to say there isn't anything. But if you look at one of the things I have read a lot about is the, the starting of the Peace Corps. And what he, he believed is the Peace Corps was not there to bring American values. It was to help people in their countries do what they wanted to do and provide basic education and water and things like that. Um, so if you take those same ideals to what was happening in Vietnam, um, uh, uh, you, you, would, you would argue in terms of that sense. But I wouldn't, I don't want to go too far on that one. Yeah, yeah there, I there is documentation. He'd order them to get out. There is some, again, there are Vietnam John Kennedy scholars that would, would my knowledge pales by comparison. And so there is some of that, and some of them say that whether he would have pulled it out completely or reduced it, um, I don't know. But yes, there is some documentation to that effect. It, absolutely. No, it probably would have been, but again, I, 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 it's hard. I don't want to say what he would have done. I love to talk about what he did do and what does it mean for today. <laughs>